Issues Etc. 24, Hour 21, starts now. God's Word is Our Great Heritage, sung by the Concordia Seminary Chorus. Welcome back to Issues Etc. 24. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. One of the myths that we're taking up here in the last several hours of Issues Etc. 24 is actually suggested by the guest that uh, is coming on here for the next couple hours to talk about the myth. Chris Rosebro suggested the myth that Martin Luther invented the teachings of law and gospel, the distinction between law and gospel. Now, I, I must admit, I've heard this one before. I've heard it from, huh, I've heard it from my fellow Lutherans. It's one of those internal myths that rolls around. Those are some of the most pernicious ones of all. That this is just kind of an idiosyncratic uh, uh, peculiarity of of Luther and Lutherans. It's not the way. All Christian preaching ought to be. It's not the way the Bible ought to be read universally. It's just one way among many, many, maybe not in the best way, to interpret God's Word, to understand God's Word in terms of law and gospel. And, of course, that myth continues to persist. Joining us to dispel it, Chris Rosebro. He's pastor of Consfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. He's a regular guest, and he's host of the daily Internet talk show called Fighting for the Faith. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. Hey, Chris. I got to know, you suggested it, where have you heard it, this myth that Luther invented the teachings of law and gospel? Um, Well, you don't normally hear it from people who um, don't understand theology. This is more of kind of like an inside baseball myth, if you would. Um, I recently saw it on, uh, you know, the uh, Reformation 21 blog from one of the authors there, had uh, heard uh, one of the people there by the name of Mark Jones, who recently written, who wrote a book on antinomianism, uh, talking about it this way, and uh, and the idea is, is so you get, you kind of get this from some of the younger reformed guys, you get this from some of the people within Lutheranism, um, and the the claim is is that this this distinction between law and gospel is some kind of a synthetic uh, construct that was put on Scripture. And you know, in a sense, actually keeps you from rightly understanding what God's word is about, and uh, and so it, it people who generally uh, you know approach this myth or try to create this idea that Luther invented this myth. This is kind of some weird way that Lutherans read the scripture. Uh, they're what they're trying to do is create a mental space or some kind of space in uh, in people's thinking that allows them to kind of creep in. 
works righteousness. At least that's generally how I've seen it. And so, uh, in fact, uh, Mark Jones, I would consider him to be kind of like a, a modern-day um, majorist, you know, although he's reformed. Uh, you know, in Lutheranism, we have we, we call the majoristic controversy, uh, where major basically contended that we're uh, you know, that good works are necessary for salvation. And so oftentimes the people who are making these types of claims, they're looking for a way to uh, either, you know, openly or kind of tacitly smuggle in good works as uh, as part of our justification. Okay, I want to get into kind of the particulars of what what we mean by by the distinction between law and gospel. It's, it's, it's easy to misunderstand if you're unfamiliar with the distinction itself. Most people think, oh, you're talking about uh, uh, Old Testament and, and New Testament. What is the, the best way to approach a Lutheran understanding of law and gospel? And then we'll deal with whether or not it's a idiosyncrasy of Luther or Lutheranism. Right. Uh, it's, it's not, it is not the distinction between uh, New Testament and Old Testament. That's, that's actually a wrong way of looking at it, because if, when you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of gospel in it, uh, which is rather fascinating. In fact, some of the best gospel passages are in the Old Testament, so that's not really what we're talking about here. A simple way to understand the distinction between law and gospel is, um, is when you're reading the Bible, how do you make sense of what seems to be contradictory statements made in Scripture, where on the one hand you have these um, these commandments of God that, you know, God says, do this and you will live. Don't do this and you're cursed. You know, don't do this and I'll punish you. So you've got these demands from God, and, um, and you know, and we resonate towards these things because we have the law of God written on our heart. And then you get to these other passages where salvation doesn't hinge at all upon how well you keep the law or what you do or don't do, but instead uh, righteousness is bestowed and salvation is given as a gift, as a promise, not by works, but by grace. How do you make sense of these two things? And so the idea is is that when we approach Scripture, um, Scripture actually teaches us to understand that there are two two words really in scripture that seem contradictory the one is a condemning word but the other is is a, is an assuring promising word and so that's really the right way of doing it and you can and you'll find that you can see this played out all the way back in Genesis through the the entire Old Testament and into the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, you see the promises that are given there are promises looking forward to the future uh, Messiah, the one who was actually promised in the Garden of Eden in uh, Genesis chapter 3. And then we are looking backwards uh, in history at the promises of the Messiah fulfilled. And so, you know, there's this, there's this tension between these two words, and, uh, and, and the question is, how do you make sense of them? And then ultimately, how do you keep them rightly um, distinguished so that you're using them as a Christian in their proper biblical categories? That's, I think, a good you know, place to start. Okay, so we have a, just to summarize, we have in Scripture two, two teachings. One is what God requires absolutely requires of man. The other is um, an altogether different teaching, what God has done to fulfill those requirements in Jesus Christ, 
for man. Is that the best way to kind of look at this in a nutshell? Yeah, no, I, 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 that's a, that's a great way to summarize summarize it. What's demanded of us, and what God has done. You know, maybe that's a good way to kind of boil it down into those two uh, things. Yeah. Well, let's start by making the case that this isn't uh, an invention of Martin Luther by way of of finding this distinction itself being made in Holy Scripture. Where would you start us? You know, I think a good place to start is is not where Lutherans normally start. If you're going to make the case that this is not something that Martin Luther invented, you have to go to Scripture, number one. And I think it's it's best to kind of demonstrate that this tension between law and gospel, and it, it shows up very, very early in Church history. And the, the place I would actually uh, take people to to begin with is the book of Acts, chapter 15. And in that passage, what we have is the very first church council, if you would, and it was convened over this issue. How do we understand the law? And how does the law apply then to Christians? And so, um, you know, that would be a place to begin, you know, to kind of, you know, let's take a look at the fact that this is, this law gospel thing, uh, you know, is actually something that was wrestled with by the earliest of Christians during the apostolic era. And so um, I'm going to read some scripture here. In fact, we'll kind of do this uh, Bible study style, and uh, we'll start at, uh, at Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and I'm reading from the ESV. Here's what it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be Saved. Now I'm going to stop right there and point out that literally what uh, what these Judaizers were saying was that um, your right standing before God is dependent upon your keeping of the Mosaic Covenant. And so, you know, the, when we talk about long gospel, the Mosaic Covenant is one of these things that actually comes into play. Uh, very explicitly, because in the Mosaic Covenant we have the Decalogue, we have these civil and ceremonial laws as well, and so what they're basically saying is is that your right standing before God, and if I can borrow a term, a Latin term, quorum deo, um, is dependent upon your keeping of the law, and in this particular case they're pointing to uh, not made-up human law, but a law that's actually revealed in Scripture. You can go and look these things up in the Old Testament, and you'd say, well, yeah, you know, there's there's a commandment right there in God's Word that says, unless you're circumcised, you know, you're, you're to be put out of the community of Israel. And so they're, they're basically saying justification is based in part or, you know, it, you know, on your keeping of these commandments. And so after Paul and Barnabas had no, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem uh, to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that God had... uh, all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here we've got this conflict. What are we to do with the law of Moses? Here we have all of these Gentiles who God is bringing to faith 
uh, in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they're not they're not going through the standard uh, procedures for bringing people into the uh, you know community of Israel. They're not being circumcised. They're not being told that they have to put away their bacon. And and this is creating a, a controversy. So on the one side you have the party of the Pharisees, and they are based. No, you've got to keep God's law. This is absolutely demanded. And notice he keeps saying law of Moses, law of Moses. That actually comes into play. And and Paul of all people, who is a former Pharisee, he's one of their sharpest critics. And uh, we'll talk. We'll actually look at what Paul does with them later in the book of Galatians. But so at the council, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, "Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe." Notice, believe that that this is referring to faith. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. And then this is, this is a very important thing here. We talk about you know, having faith. The question is, you have faith in what? A good way to think about faith is that faith is one of these things that's like eyesight. It always has something that it's fixated on. Um, you know, you, if you say you have faith in yourself, or well, your faith is fixated on you. If you have faith in another person, it's, it's in that other person. And here, faith is, is, its object is Christ in the promises of the forgiveness of sins. So we can say, this is salvation by faith in the gospel. And so, Peter's making, it's like, he's saying, hey, listen, you know, when I visited the house of Cornelius, um, you know, and then you can find this in Acts chapter 10, and then he, he's, you know, kind of called on the carpet in Acts chapter 11. You know, he says, when I visited the house of Cornelius, these, I preached Christ and him crucified to these guys, and God the Holy Spirit did something amazing. He, the Holy Spirit fell on them even before they were baptized. And the Holy Spirit made no distinction between them and us. And these were people, you know, Cornelius was not one who was circumcised. So, you know, already we see at play here this distinction between law and gospel. And ultimately the question hinges on how do we have a right standing before God? So now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so, here in Acts chapter 15, we see that the Christians, you know, first century, apostles are still alive, and Paul is still alive, and they're, they're doing their missionary work. Gentiles are now being added to, uh, to the church, and this debate between law and gospel is the center of the very first church council recorded in in human history. Not only is this recorded in human history, this is recorded in Holy Writ, which means what we have here is, uh, you know, the, 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 the conclusion of this church council is inspired by God the Holy Spirit and there for us to guide us. So this law-gospel tension, this law-gospel distinction, if you pay attention to Scripture, this is long before Martin Luther walked the earth, and this shows that, you know, you know, at the very beginning, that this was something that had to be wrestled with by the earliest of Christians, and the question then becomes is not whether Martin Luther made this up, but if 
he is in line with this church council and with Holy Scripture regarding what, you know, this, this distinction between law and gospel. Now, we should point out here, Chris, that the only way that the apostles arrive at the conclusion they did, and we are simply stuck with the conclusion they arrived at, uh, that's a historical fact, is by sorting this thing out in terms of law and gospel. Isn't that right? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And, and even the text itself makes it clear that that's what they were wrestling with. This is what they were debating. This was the subject that was on the table. And, um, you know, we would be wise to not overturn the uh, the conclusions of this church council, <laughs> you know, to put it, you know, to put it bluntly, because that is the church council that sorts out the issues between law and gospel. And notice that Peter talks about the fact that why are you trying to put a yoke on the neck of these people that we even couldn't bear? And that itself, you know, you know, when you start to cross-reference what Peter is saying with the book of Galatians, and we can get to this as as the uh, you know as our time unfolds. But this even itself begins to you know, you bring into you know the light you know what was the purpose of the Mosaic law was the purpose of the Mosaic law and that and that covenant was it to save people was the purpose of so that you can have a right standing before God by your good works by your keeping of these commandments what was its purpose. And so, as we discuss this law-gospel distinctive, we're going to have to wrestle, as they did at this church council, with what was the function of the law? I mean, you know, why did God give it in the first place? What was that all about? And if you think that the reason why God gave the law was so that you can be saved by it, or if uh, another way to put it that a lot of people, a common error that uh, people fall into that are Christians, is this belief that the the people in the Old Testament, you know, so you know, you'd say Moses and David and Joshua, and uh, and those guys that they were saved by keeping the law, but that is not true. Scripture absolutely, the New Testament reveals that no one is justified before God by keeping the Mosaic covenant, and so. Um, you know, this this is one of those things that's really difficult to wrestle with, and so put it away, put it out of your mind, this this erroneous belief that the Old Testament saints were saved by their keeping of the law. Scripture actually reveals, and we'll get to these passages, that even the Old Testament saints, every single one of them was saved by grace through faith in the promises. Before we go on to, and I think you're aiming us in the direction of Galatians, um, before we do that, um, do we find Christ himself applying the law and the gospel in this way. That is a law that is um, the primary function of which is to show us our need for a perfect a perfect obedience, the perfect substitutionary obedience of another. Um, yeah, actually you do. You see hints of this. Um, you, know, you know, Jesus doesn't come out and explicitly say it like the way Romans does, and so this is one of the things that's a little bit of a challenge. But we do see Jesus using law and gospel. And, you know, for instance, you know, we, you know, when we look at the book of Romans, Romans makes it clear in chapter 3 that the purpose of the law is to show us our sin and, uh, and also to get us to shut up. Um, and so you think of the, uh, the, the, the time when uh, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and, uh, you know, he's, he wants to ask, he's, he's asking Jesus about, um, you know, you know you, you, what, what can he do to inherit eternal life? That's kind of the question that's on the table. In fact, let me find the passage real quick. I've got my uh, copy of Lagos. Oh, here it is. 
10.17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Okay, so you know, you, a lot of people, when they read this passage, you know, and when I was an evangelical, you know, I would read this passage and say, oh, you know, man, this guy, you know, look at that list of things that he's done, okay? He clearly has got it way better together than I do. And so, you know, but watch what Jesus says. He cranks the law up. He says, you know, teach all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, all right, well, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Okay? And so this, the guy leaves disheartened. Okay? He went away because sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And, when you, and the story doesn't end here. Oftentimes when people preach or teach on this, they will, leave, they will end here. But Jesus goes on. Okay? And the question is, what's going on in this text? And Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and watch what he says, with man it is impossible. But with God, all, you know, but not with God, for all things are possible with God or with Him. So notice what Jesus is saying here. Okay, when we, we read this passage, with man it is impossible, for, you know, uh, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. So many people misquote this text. Oh, with God, all things are possible. They put this as a slogan, you know, in their gym or, you know, or, you know they're, they're training for some triathlete. With God, all things are possible. As if God somehow, you know, making it possible for them to excel at sports or at their business or whatever. Nah, 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 nah. You know, what Jesus is literally saying here is you know, the question on the table is who can be saved? And Jesus makes it clear, with, with man it is impossible. It is impossible for you to be saved by your good works. But, you know, but with God, all things are possible. Salvation is only possible through what God has done for us, through Christ, through His righteousness. And so in here we even see law and gospel in play in this particular text. And if you misread it, then you 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 then you'll find yourself saying, well, what are the things? In order to be saved, I got to go and sell my possessions and give it to the poor and and do social justice and stuff like that. But that's not what Jesus was doing. He used the law here to condemn this man of his sin, and his sin was rank idolatry, rank idolatry. And Jesus exposes that by telling him, well, go sell everything you have. Well, the reason why he couldn't sell everything he has, is, you know, at least wasn't willing to do so, is because money was his idol. This was, a, this was kind of a first commandment issue. And uh, when, you know, the, when Jesus you know, lists off the commandments, he goes second table on the guy, which are the, you know, the portion of the commandments that deal with our, right stand, uh, our standing before each other and how we treat each other. But then Jesus cranks it up takes into the fact well the, the your core problem here is is that you you're an idolater and then Jesus makes that great point about you know who can be saved well with man it's impossible so only with 
Only by what Christ has done for us is it possible for us to be saved. And even Jesus uses this law gospel distinctive. And um, he doesn't, it's interesting there, he leaves, as far as we can tell, he leaves that, that young man just dangling with the law. He does deliver the the at least the kind of the beginning of the consolation to those who were astonished at this. But that young man is left for the time being um, to go out and I guess try and work it out by the law if he wants to if he wants to inherit eternal life by the law. Yeah, he does, and that's not a, a cruelty on Jesus' part. We have to understand that God's Word does not return to him void. It actually accomplishes the thing that God sends it out to do. And, um, you know, it's the idea then is this, is that sometimes it takes a while for somebody to um, marinate, if you would, in God's law, for them to come to the conclusion, yeah, I've really got nothing here. Um, I'm not doing this. Uh, I'm not going to make it on my own steam. I, I literally am not keeping this law. And and that's the thing. You, if you really think you're saved by by keeping the law, really try to keep it. Really try hard. You know. Um, you know. You know, I, you, know you, you could try like you know Methodism. That's you know the Wesleyan Methodism. I I actually uh, as growing up. Uh, uh, spent some time in the Nazarene Church, which is this cocktail between uh, uh, Wesleyan Methodism and Finneyite revivalism, which is a terrible cocktail, by the way. It leads to utter despair. And and see, that's the thing. You know, just wrestle with the law. You really try to keep it, and and you know, and say to yourself, I can't be saved until I am doing this perfectly. And see how far that gets you. I mean, most people can't even uh, keep a, a New Year's resolution past week two of January every year. How are you? How then are you going to keep God's law perfectly? Let you you just try it, um, and you know, marinate in that for a while, and you'll begin to you know see how the withering effects of God's law um, will drive you either to despair or really, in, in a true sense, prepare you to hear the good news, the good news that Christ has done this all for you, and your right standing before God is accomplished 100% by what Jesus did for you on the cross. Chris, where do we go next, uh, scripturally, to establish the, uh, the very clear teaching of law and gospel, that distinction? Well, uh, because we're dealing with a myth that, that, that Luther, you know, started this, um, you know, uh, when when that happens, I like to avoid the uh, the Luther passages, <laughs> at least at first. I circle back to them, but demonstrate that this is actually all over Scripture, if you would. And uh, Galatians cha- Galatians is the place I would go next. Um, and the reason being is is that you know if we start in Acts fifteen, Galatians itself um, it provides us, if you would, a little bit more apostolic detail. Uh, regarding, you know, what I would say, is some of the arguments that were used and developed at this church council in Jerusalem. Um, these, you know, because what we, we have in Acts 15 is kind of the summary of what happened. When, but when we look at the book of Galatians, we can actually, you know, see that this, these were more, more than likely some of the very arguments that Paul and Barnabas used at uh, that council in Jerusalem. And so... You know, and this is that conflict. What do we do with the with the Mosaic Law? And so Paul writes this harshly 
strongly worded letter to the churches in Galatia, because after he left, uh, you know, after he planted these churches in Galatia, he left, and along behind him came the, the Pharisaical Judaizers, and they were saying things like, you know, that Apostle Paul, let, let's tell you about that guy. That guy, you know, he, it, it's 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 a stretch to call him an apostle. I mean, don't you understand this is a guy who was killing Christians? I mean, he didn't even, you know, how can you call him an apostle? He didn't even hang out with Jesus the way, you know, Peter and James did. And 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 so, you know, Paul as well-meaning as he is, he forgot to tell you Gentiles here that there's this little procedure that uh, we have to perform on you um called circumcision and and you're not saved unless unless you uh, you have this done and and you keep the uh, you know the feast days and you and you follow the mosaic covenant. So this is what's going on. This this is an example of Paul actually writing a letter to the churches in Galatia specifically to combat uh, the claims of the Judaizers that your salvation is dependent upon your law keeping. And so we'll start right at the beginning. Uh, Galatians one, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and to all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Notice right off the bat that Paul has to establish his apostolic credentials. This is a unique letter on Paul's part. It doesn't begin like any of his other letters. It's like from the word go. You know, Paul is basically asserting his authority as an apostle and and bringing this up. And, and so he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. <laughs> so there's a, the gospel shows up already by verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so now he dispenses with the pleasant trees and gets right to business. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, the, the Greek word is anathema. You can say, let him be damned. Now, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned or accursed. Now, real quick, you know, this is, this is kind of an important piece of all of this, is that Paul is alluding to and making reference to the gospel that he preached, and is, is saying, even if we, even if I myself were to come to you, or an angel were to appear from heaven and preach to you a different or contrary gospel, let him be damned. Now the question comes up, well then, what is the gospel that Paul preached? And so it's important at this point to have a good handy-dandy uh, cross-reference to this, because um, there's even uh, there's a lot of confusion when you read even you know evangelical authors today. There's a lot of confusion about what the gospel is, and um, and so you know this is one of those terms that we're going to need to have a reference for. And thankfully, the Apostle Paul actually in another letter records for us what his gospel is that he preached. And you can find this in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, let me read it uh, uh, for you. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1, he says, he says to the uh, church in Corinth, Now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So there it is. 
So <laughs> here's your reference. If you want to know what the gospel is that Paul preached, okay, and the one in which you, if you teach something contrary to it, you're, you're cursed, well, thankfully, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have that gospel. He says, um, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, this is going to be a critical little piece, the critical little word here. Um, Paul's saying, I delivered this gospel to you, and I also received it. In Galatians, Paul makes it clear that, uh, you know, where he received this from, but I don't want to get too far ahead. Here's what he says. Here's what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive and some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Now, the Gospel in a nutshell, and the Gospel that Paul preached is that Christ died for our sins. That's the good news. And this says, in accordance with the Scripture, he was buried and raised in accordance with the Scripture. This itself should sound familiar to uh, anybody who's spent time in liturgical churches. This sounds a lot like a creed, and many scholars actually uh, argue that this is probably one of the very, very, very first Christian creeds out there. But Paul, then, that's what the gospel is that he preached. Christ died for our sins. And you're thinking, well, that's it? Well, no, that's that, to say it that way is to kind of miss the point. That's like the whole enchilada. Christ died for our sins. This is the good news. And this alludes to these promises that if we believe and trust in Christ, um, then we receive the forgiveness of our sins, and that's the thing that gives us a right standing before God. And so Paul, here in going, coming back to Galatians, he says... You know, that if you, if, you know, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one you received, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. So we now know what that gospel is, the good news, the proclamation that Christ died for our sins and was raised again. And so now Paul gets, you know, gets into it. So that's his opening. He says, now, for am I now trying to seek the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And this, so the question, he says, what I, you know, I, what I preached to you is what I received, and what is it that he received? And so here he's saying that this gospel he received, it's not man's. Well, where did Paul get it? For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the Church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned to Damascus. So Paul here is literally saying this gospel that he preached, he received that directly from Jesus Christ himself. He didn't hear it from Peter or from James or Bartholomew or any of the guys who hung out with Jesus for, you know, during Jesus' earthly ministry. That gospel... Christ died for our sins, he received that directly from Jesus himself, and that's what his point is. 
So here we've got Paul in sharp disagreement with the Judaizers who'd come in behind him in Galatia who were saying, you can't be saved unless you keep the Mosaic traditions. And Paul is saying, reasserting himself as, as an apostle and making it clear that the gospel he preached was not from man, but was from Christ himself. Now, we should probably pause there and, and you know, and, uh, you know, uh, summarize and make sure we, you know, where we go from here. But I think that's, that's a, a, the next great place to go, showing that this law-gospel distinction is actually the whole, the whole enchilada when we're talking about uh, the book of Galatians. Chris Roseborough is our guest. We will summarize on the other side of the break when we come back with him. On this Saturday morning, November the 15th, we're in hour 21, going into hour 22 of Issues Etc. 24, the myth that we're dealing with in course of all of the myths that we've dealt with here in the course of this long broadcast day is that Martin Luther invented the teachings of long gospel. We'll be right back. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all right. Clear, concise, consistent. You're listening to Issues Etc. To a person who has listened since about 1995, Issues Etc. is the instrument that has brought me to the church where absolutes reign supreme. This is a place where one is taught, it's not about you, it's about Jesus for you. It is my theology school. It is my place of biblical clarity. It is a class where we separate the truth from error. It is a global class for people of the international church who have no other place where they can go to learn of God and draw closer to him. A place of comfort and instruction and the path that led me from Catholicism and evangelicalism to the LCMS. Whew, I have arrived. This is Ann in Crestwood. Thanks so much, Ann in Crestwood, and thanks to everyone who's listening and who's supported Issues Etc. during Issues Etc. 24. And thanks to uh, Kirsten in Washington State uh, for her generous donation. She writes, listening to Issues Etc. 24 on live stream and enjoying it. Love you guys. Thank you for your faithful teaching of the Word of Jesus in Him. And uh, also, thanks to Audrey in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Thanks, Audrey, for your uh, gift as well. And both uh, Audrey and Kirsten will be eligible for a drawing an hour from now on the book Law and Gospel, How to Read and Apply the Bible. And you can be eligible as well. If you make a $100 donation to Issues Etc. in the next hour, uh, we'll draw the winner of that one hour from now here on Issues Etc. 24. Give us a call. We're uh, waiting to speak with you. Take your pledge, your support for Issues Etc. 877-623-6943. That is our toll-free number. You can also uh, go to our website, issuesetc.org. There you'll find a secure donate link. 
uh, at our website. And if you're an on-demand listener, you're not listening live, you're listening sometime uh, in the future to this uh, broadcast, uh, please call us at the office and pledge your support for Issues Etc. Number here, 618-223-8385. And if you're listening to uh, Issues Etc. 24, uh, uh, post it on our Facebook fan page, how you're listening, where you're listening from at facebook.com slash etc. Or you can uh, send a tweet to at issues etc. Uh, catching up on some of these things. This is an email from Kathy sitting up early with husband Brian while waiting for pain pills to kick in after foot surgery. What a blessing to be comforted by God's word with uh, Pastor Kleinig. And uh, this is a tweet that comes from uh, Brady. And let's see if I can find that tweet. I can't find the tweet. Yeah, here it goes. He's my son just woke up with a sore throat. Now I can hear of the Holy Spirit by Dr. Kleining as I wait for him to sleep. What about you? How are you listening to Issues Etc. 24? Send a tweet to at Issues ETC or post uh, something or picture or text at our Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Issues ETC. And during uh, the, we go back to the great teaching by Chris Roseborough, Call and pledge your support for the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. during Issues Etc. 24. 877-623-6943. Craig and I are standing by awaiting to uh, take personally take your pledges. 877-623-MY-IE, 618-223-8385 for those of you who aren't listening live. And, of course, anytime, 24-7, online donation at issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. 24, Hour 22, starts now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. 24. I'm Todd Wilkin. Chris Rosebro is our guest. We're dispelling the myth that Martin Luther invented the distinction and the teaching of law and gospel. I do invite your questions and your comments. I know many of you are getting up, perhaps tuning in for the first time here on this Saturday morning, November the 15th. We are coming to you live, one 623 myie 877-623-6943. Send us an email right here in the studio, talkback at issuesetc.org, a tweet at issuesetc, or you can go to our Facebook fan page. We have left space there for you to post a question or a comment for Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith on this myth about Martin Luther inventing the teachings of law and gospel. Facebook.com slash issuesetc, facebook.com slash issuesetc. Summarize what we've done so far here. We've talked about a little bit about... Uh, the uh, interaction of the apostles in the book of Acts, and then uh, drawn kind of directly from that, the, uh, the the direction that Paul goes in the book of Galatians. How would you summarize what we've discovered so far, Chris? Well, what we've discovered so far is that this uh, distinction between law and gospel is, uh, you know, number one, it, it exists long before Luther uh, comes on the scene. In fact, uh, this the debates between how to rightly understand the gospel and the law together 
It goes all the way back to the first century, uh, to the, you know, the earliest days when the apostles were still alive, and it was the subject of the, uh, the Council of Jerusalem that is uh, recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. And some of the finer arguments then we begin to see uh, being unpacked in the, in, in the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia in order to rebuke them and correct them, uh, regarding the fact that they were listening to and being influenced by the, the, uh, the Judaizers who were saying that your right standing before God, your justification, uh, is uh, in part, you know, or in whole, it just kind of doesn't really matter. It's, if, it's, if it's anything, uh, you know, that it has to do with works, and then what they have not rightly understood, the proper distinction of law and gospel. That's the very essence of the, of the book of Galatians itself. So you said before the break that it's kind of, for Paul, it's the whole enchilada. It is, are you saying there that for Paul, this distinction between law and gospel is crucial for maintaining the biblical gospel that he says, you know, if you hear another one from someone else or even me, let them be accursed? Yeah, no, that's that's correct. When we talk about heresy, you know, you know, a lot of people ask questions, you know, how do you make a difference between somebody who's a heretic and somebody who's just a, a confused false teacher who may not rightly be, uh, you know, teaching God's Word? Well, what we find here, you know, the very, very first anathema pronounced in the New Testament is an anathema against somebody who teaches a false gospel. So it's not even a Christological heresy or heresy regarding the doctrine of the Trinity that comes up first in in the Church's history. The very first assault against the Christian faith you know, by the devil, if you would, um, is is an assault against the good news itself, and uh, an attempt to mix with the pure promises of Christ's forgiveness won for us. Uh, mix in with that um, our works in some part. Well, it can't all be a gift. It's it's you, you got to do your part in order to be you know saved. No, 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 no. Paul says if you preach a different gospel than the one he preached then let that person be damned. Let that person be anathema. So, I mean, the, the law-gospel distinction is the distinction that, that sets up the very first anathemas, if you would, in Church history. So uh, where do we go from here, now that we've seen that this is in, it's in Jesus' preaching, teaching his interaction with, uh, with others? It's certainly an apostolic—I mean, you said, let's not mess with the apostolic council. St. Paul applies it— Completely consistently with that. What's next? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're, let's keep going through the book of Galatians because I want I want to see how this unfolds. And if you don't understand law and gospel, these categories, you can't even get what's going on in the book of Galatians and what Paul is um, is, is talking about. I mean, it's it's literally the the dialogue at the center and core of the book of Galatians. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to Galatians chapter two, and uh, you know, and so we can kind of see how Paul unpacks his argument here. Uh, uh, verse eleven: When when Cephas, that's uh, the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, Paul, he says, "I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned." So here's the, here's kind of the setup here. You know, Peter decides to uh, you know to go and visit the church in Antioch, which is you know. Uh, not, you know, a church that is going to be comprised of uh, primarily uh, Gentiles. And he shows up, and it's that Paul says, I opposed him to his face, he stood condemned, and here's the reason why. For before certain men came from James, 
he was eating with the Gentiles. You can kind of, you know, a good way to, uh, you know, to maybe, you know, contextualize this is say, well, Peter, he had bacon breath, you know, he, so he's, he's there in Antioch, and, and he's eating with the Gentiles. Whatever it is they're eating, he's eating, so he's not being kosher at this point, okay? But here's what happened. When certain men came from James, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, look at that. <laughs> Paul, right there in verse 14, chapter 2, says their conduct, not even their speech, their actions, what they were doing with their physical bodies was not in keeping or in step with the truth of the gospel. And what is the gospel? Christ died for our sins. It's the, the proclamation of salvation by grace through faith, right? He says, so I said to Cephas before them all, if you a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul was not one to, um, you know, this kind of like pussyfoot around a subject. He goes right for the jugular. And then he says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, which is kind of the way the Jews would talk about this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Pause there for a second. Let's make sure we get a word uh, understood. Uh, when it says, we know that a person is not justified, there's a lot of confusion nowadays, and a lot of people don't understand what that word means, uh, justified. The Greek verb there is dikaiaho, and it's, it, you can think of it as kind of a judicial term. And, and when, we talk, when we think of justification, we think about somebody trying to justify their behavior or justify their actions. That's not what this word means. Dikaiaho is a court term. And so if you were hauled into court, you know, on charges of maybe you had stolen something or whatever like that, um, when the, the judge pronounces his verdict and the gavel falls, that's the dikaiao. That's, that's what it means, you know, what this word means. And so the idea is, is that uh, it's to be declared righteous. So when the gavel falls, the judge declares you innocent. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous. So here's what he says. We know that a person is not, you can say at this point, declared righteous, you know, judicially, by works of the law. Here is the law gospel distinctive right here in broad brush in, uh, in Galatians chapter 2. He says, but, um, but, but, so we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And here's the kicker, because by works of the law, no one, not one person will be declared righteous or justified. So, I mean, this, I mean, this little setup here in, in Galatians 2, and the rest of the book itself, the, the rest of this epistle, unpacks this, this truth, but there it is in its crystalline, you know, form, in, in its purest, no one is going to be declared righteous. No one is justified before God by works of the law. And you can see here, there's the law gospel distinctive 
in play. Paul is the one who's using it, and he's using it not in the context of that Peter and these other guys from James were teaching something contrary to the law-gospel distinctive. Instead, he's rebuking them because they were acting contrary to the gospel and this distinction between law and gospel. So um, he sees in them, back to kind of, uh, if they if they fail to make this distinction, and that's what they're doing, the gospel itself is at stake. He sees, uh, and you've pointed it out here several times, that just the just their behavior betrays a different gospel at work, one that has uh, what uh, become a mixture of law and gospel. Yes, it's 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 a mixture of law and gospel, and they're and they're at this point kind of uh, you know it, 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 the way this is un- unfolding, their uncertainty as to how to reconcile the the Mosaic covenant with this proclamation, this good news that Christ died for our sins. I mean, early on, the the Church had to wrestle through these things, and I think this is actually comforting for us. And the reason why it's comforting is is that, man, if if Peter himself and even James were, you know, early on were wrestling with these things and they didn't quite know how to sort it out at first, that gives me a lot of comfort, too, because, you know, I, I got to tell you, you know, growing up in legalistic Nazarene pietism, when I first heard of this law-gospel distinctive and, and somebody showed me from Scripture how this works out, I... I had a tough time with it. It, 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 it when 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 I heard the God, that my salvation was completely a gift given to me by Christ, I actually could, it, it, that sounded too good to be true. And so it's it's good that to see that even Peter was wrestling with these things because I've got the law written on our, on my heart and the the gospel is this alien message it comes from out it, it only can it comes from outside of me and can only be found really in scripture and it's one that really says to me listen stop trying to hedge your bets you can't hedge your bets as as dr rosenblatt likes to say you know the gospel is the thing that tells you to bet all the blue chips on jesus and stop scattering them around the roulette table all the blue chips on jesus cuz when that ball drops it's on him so where do we go from here chris well let's keep reading through galatians 2 and uh and and and, and get into 3 because the the question on the table you know, again is you know how this law gospel distinctive what does scripture say about it you know this is this is not what chris says about it this is not what luther says about it this is what scripture says about this law gospel distinctive and notice that scripture is explicitly teaching it explicitly teaching it and it does so kind of circling around the issue itself and looking at it from different angles so paul continues verse 17 he says but if in our endeavor to be justified in christ we too are found to be sinners, is Christ and a servant of sin, which is fascinating because it seems like every time you really preach the free forgiveness of sins and justification by grace alone, through faith alone, the charge always seems to come up that you're somehow teaching, you know, you know that you're, you know, that, the, oh, you're just saying you can just go and sin all you want. No. That's not what, what we're saying, and Paul kind of you know anticipates this. He's been preaching the gospel long enough to know that when you preach it, this is often the charge. He says, well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And this is where we start to understand how the law, what the, what the law's function is. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. It doesn't say live by works. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me, and I do not, watch what he says here, I do not nullify the grace of God. Notice he says, he's not interested, he doesn't care if he's nullifying the law. He says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Notice here for Paul, you mess this up. You mess up the law gospel distinctive. You you improperly use the law and try to smuggle your good works into the in, into your right standing before God. You end up making it so that Christ's death was for no purpose. And why is this? Because the gospel he preached is summarized as Christ died for our sins. So when you start to smuggle your good works in to make that part of your standing before God, you end up nullifying what Christ accomplished for you on the cross. And then Paul says in chapter 3, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now we, now we get back to the cross. It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now the answer to the question is, well, they received the Spirit by hearing with faith. So are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now notice here, Paul here is now talking post-conversion with these people. He, he points them to their conversion, points out the fact they received the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith, and now Paul's expectation is that they're going to continue in that faith, and the Spirit's going to continue to work in them, not by works of the law, but by their continuing to hear and listen and believe in faith. That's the idea. Listen, you never graduate beyond the gospel, ever, ever. And it's and see, this is another common error that people have, is they, 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 they have this kind of like rear-view mirror gospel thing. Well, the gospel is that thing that I heard years ago when I was at the Billy Graham crusade, and I, and I walked the aisle and I made the decision for Jesus. What, what use is the gospel for me now? I've, moved, I've graduated to more important things, you know, and those more important things are, you know, the law, you know, and, and, and things like that. Paul here blows that whole thing up <laughs> and basically says, no, 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 no. Christ and him crucified for our sins is the very thing that we keep in front of us. We never graduate beyond the gospel. And if you think that the law is the thing that you graduate to, your thinking is backwards, upside down, and inside out. And that's the argument that he's making. Isn't that precisely you mentioned before, Mark Jones, the author of that book on antinomism, coming from a, a reform perspective, albeit, um, isn't that precisely what he is trying to argue for, trying to combat and uh, maybe it, some form of a genuine antinomianism? But isn't he saying, look, the gospel's good, has its place, but the real assurance, the 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 real uh, solid ground upon which we stand is obedience. Yeah, and um, th- this is a this is a major problem. Um, 
and and we could talk about this. I I, I think the reasons for this, um, you know, when it's it's what uh, my friend Jordan Cooper calls the tyranny of fruit checking. You know, this idea that the only way I can have assurance that I'm in the faith is by constantly checking my fruits. Am I bearing enough fruit? Am I doing enough good works? And Jones comes right out and says that he believes that uh, we're saved. Um, how does he put it? Um, that um, that oh here's how he says it. he says that good works are necessary for salvation, and this is this is a, this is a this is a very terrible error because what it does then is it forces you to look at your progress in sanctification and notice I said your progress, not not the progress that the Holy Spirit is working in you, but your progress, you know, for assurance of salvation, and this this is a kind of indicative of non sacramental. Uh, theological schemes, because here's the deal, is that Lutheranism constantly points you to the objective means of grace where where the true promises of Christ are attached. So um, where do we look for our assurance? Well, we look for our assurance, first and foremost, we look at our baptism. Why? Because there's promises associated, uh, you know, to baptism. That baptism is a washing away of our sins. It buries uh, us with Christ. It raises us with Christ. Our hearts are circumcised by Christ, all in the waters of our baptism. And these, the, these promises are sure and true, and our faith clings to those promises and notice is objective and outside of you. Another place where you can look for assurance, when you, when you go to the Lord's table and you hear the pastor say, take, eat, this is Christ's body, the true body of Christ, broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, drink, this is the true blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, those are true and those are sure and certain promises attached then to the Lord's Supper. And so what we're, as, and then you can even talk about the absolution and we talk about the preached word. And, and so the idea then is, is that what we're trying to do within the Lutheran faith is get people to stop looking inside of themselves and keep placarding Christ and where the sure and certain promises are, because this, this is what faith clings to. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in Galatians. He's pointing them away from their good works and their internal, you know, internal, how am I keeping this law kind of thing, and pointing them back again to Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Our, our, you know, faith is like eyesight. It always has an object, and the object, it's, it, it can't, it, 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 one of the ways I describe it is, is that faith, it's like faith only has one hand. And so it can either grasp onto the promises that Christ is giving objectively, or it'll let go of those and grab onto something else, I mean, our good works or, or other things like that. But it, it's, you don't have two hands when it comes to faith. You've only got one. Okay. Um, do we remain in Galatians here for a bit? Yeah, I do want to remain in Galatians uh, here for a bit, and when we're finished, we'll end up in Romans with the, you know, the the famous passage of Luther, because you'll see how these all work together. Okay, so coming back to this again, the law gospel distinctive is in play, and notice that this is organically coming up out of the text. This is not something me or you or Luther is imposing on the text. This is the very thing that we're digging out of the text itself. Okay, so. 
Paul then says, um, verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? The answer is no, or by hearing with faith. The answer is hearing by faith. And now he points us to Abraham. It says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now, this is where you begin to see the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ you know, uh, alluded to. He says, So know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That is an explosive statement, and that is just a hugely explosive statement. It's not those who are keepers of the Mosaic Covenant who are the sons of Abraham. Paul here is saying that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And this is, this is the unexpected statement from somebody who grew up in Pharisaical Judaism. You know, he, Paul, growing up, would have believed that he is the son of Abraham because uh, you know, number one, genetically, but number two, because he's, he keeps the Mosaic Covenant. But Paul turns this whole thing on its head and says, those who are of faith, and faith has uh, its object, the promises, and the promises is the gospel. He says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify or declare righteous the Gentiles by faith, uh, not by works, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice here, Abraham wasn't saved by his law-keeping. Abraham, it says, was saved by faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified. There's that word again, dikaiao, that means to be declared righteous. No one, not one single person, is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith." And this, by the way, when you say the right, when he makes this distinction in verse 11, no one is justified by the law, the righteous live by faith. That's the law-gospel distinction, again, written large. And the reason for that is because faith has an object, and that object has to be the promises of the forgiveness of sins. For, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, here's the fun part. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit. How? Through faith. So you, you kind of get what's going on here. Now we got to the question, well, then what was the whole purpose of the law? Why did God give the law in the first place? I mean, here he takes children of Israel, sets them free from slavery to Pharaoh. They, they march through the Red Sea as on dry ground. The armies of Pharaoh are, are, are destroyed in the Red Sea, and then they go to Mount Sinai, and there the thunders and lightnings of God appear on the top of the mountain. The mountain is smoking and looking like a furnace, and you, you hear, Thou shalt not kill, you also have no other gods. What was the whole purpose of all of that? Well, Paul actually explains. He says, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, you can say contract, that's kind of a good parallel for us today, even with a man-made contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You can say, once the ink on the, on the contract is dried, you don't have the ability to go back and change the contents of the contract. So, so that's the kind of what, how Paul is talking. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, Paul is being a very careful exegete here uh, of the book of Genesis. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years 
after, after what? After the Abrahamic covenant um, came, uh, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So a quick summary of this, then, in, in understanding the law-gospel distinctive. When we look at the Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant doesn't show up until 430 years after the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's important to keep your contracts or your covenants straight. So Paul's argument is, is that, listen, the covenant of note is not the covenant that God made with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. No, the covenant of note is the covenant that God made unilaterally. Go and read the details of this in the book of Genesis. This co- covenant that God made with Abraham, Abraham was asleep you know, God put him to sleep. He was asleep when God performed the, that particular covenant ritual and made that covenant with Abraham. And so Abraham received it unilaterally by faith, trusting in God. And so that is the, that's the covenant of note. And the Mosaic covenant, which shows up 430 years later, can't annul that, the Abrahamic covenant. So this is all part of the law gospel distinctive. You have to keep your covenant straight. And so... So then Paul asked the question, so why then the law? Well, great question. (laughs) Well, here's what he says. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is then the law contrary to the promises? You can say, is the law contrary to the gospel, right? Um, Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, well, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Notice that Paul here is pointing us objectively to our baptism. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female. You're all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to what? The law? No. By your works? No. No. Heirs according to the promise. So, I mean, that is, that just, Paul here is using the law gospel distinctive. You can't properly understand the book of Galatians without tracking with him and seeing how he interplays between the two. And then he explicitly states that the purpose of the law was never to save us and that no one's justified by the law. And his proof is that the law, which was given on Mount Sinai, was given 430 years after the covenant that really matters. And the covenant that really matters is the Abrahamic covenant. And that was all about promises, not about doing. Chris Rosebro is our guest. Uh, We will take another break with him. And when we come back, we're going to have another half hour with him, wrap up, turning to Romans, wrapping up our response to the common myth about Lutheranism that Martin Luther invented, the teaching and the distinction between law and gospel. He's pastor of Consfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and host of the daily internet talk show called Fighting for the Faith. After about a half hour with him, we will turn to the last two hours and the last subject of Issues Etc. 24 on this Saturday morning, November the 15th. Pastor Peter Bender will join us. For hours 23 and 24, we're going to be dealing with the myth that Lutherans don't teach or believe anything 
substantive about good works. That's coming up here in about a half hour on Issues Etc. 24. When we come back, we will wrap up Chris's thoughts on Galatians. He's made a pretty strong case so far, and we will talk about Paul's distinction between law and gospel in the book of Romans as well. Stay tuned. Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. brought me back to my heritage. As a teenager, I was confirmed in the Lutheran Church, and my family's been uh, members of the Missouri Senate. And I, I'm 55 now, and about Two years ago, started listening to Issues Etc., and it rekindles a fire in me for Lutheran theology. In fact, this last Reformation Sunday, I even played Martin Luther in a uh, children's sermon. That it went actually very well, trying to instill in the kids a sense of of heritage and legacy. Because I, I've studied theology on my own, and uh, I had no idea the richness of Lutheran theology. And I have absolutely issues, etc., to thank for that exclusively. The the in-depth interviews, the myriad of uh, guests, knowledgeable guests, professors, pastors, and the like, it's been absolute education. I, I wish it was around, you know, in, in 1977 when I graduated high school. So anyways, that's what issues, etc., means to me. I'm a proud supporter. I even wear my I have issues t-shirts, so continue the good work, and I support you. Thank you. Bye now. Well, better late than never, I guess. Thanks for uh, the uh, feedback, and thanks for listening to Issues Etc. And uh, again, thanks everybody for listening during Issues Etc. 24, only two and a half hours remaining. That means two and a half hours for you to pledge a donation, a year-end tax-deductible donation to support Issues Etc. during Issues Etc. 24, 877-623-6943, 618-223-8385, or online at issuesetc.org. Thanks to John in Medina, Ohio, for donating to Issues Etc. during Issues Etc. 24. And John will receive Why I Am a Lutheran, Jesus at the Center. And you can, too, for any size gift to Issues Etc. during Issues Etc. 24. And also thanks to David in North Berwick, Maine. Thanks for listening out in Maine, David. And uh, thanks so much for your generous contribution during Issues Etc. 24. And if you make a $100 donation the next hour, or next half hour, I'm sorry, you'll be eligible to receive the book Law and Gospel, How to Read and Apply the Bible by C.F.W. Walther. If you're enjoying the great insights by Chris Roseborough like I am, that's a resource you want to get, Long Gospel, How to Read and Apply the Bible. And that could be yours, possibly, uh, if you make a $100 donation here in the next half hour. You will be in the drawing a half hour from now for that book, Long Gospel, How to Read and Apply the Bible. Great teaching from Chris Rosebrough. I'm sitting here thinking, boy, I'd love to be in this guy's Bible class. Just amazing, Christ-centered, cross-focused insights. Great teaching here on Issues Etc. 24. Hopefully you think it's worthy of your support. 
877-623-6943, 877-623-MYIE, 618-223-8385 is the phone number for all of our beloved on-demand listeners, and a secure online donation anytime, day or night, 24-7, issuesetc.org. Stands before of the hymn Water, Blood, and Spirit Crying. Chris Rosebro is our guest. We're dealing with the myth of uh, surrounding Lutheranism that Martin Luther invented the teaching of law and gospel. There's still time for your questions or your comments. Those of you who are getting up and tuning in on the Saturday morning, November the 15th, give us a call, 1 623 MyIE, 877 623 6943. Send us an email, talk back at issuesetc.org, a tweet at issuesetc. We have left space at our Facebook fan page for your questions and comments for Chris Rosebro, facebook.com slash issuesetc. Where do we go next, Chris, to kind of continue to build the case that this is a thoroughly biblical and necessary distinction, law and gospel? Well, we've uh, we've taken a look at the Church Council in Acts 15. We've uh, really walked our way for, through the first three chapters of the Book of Galatians, and as you know, as we've exegetically demonstrated, you can't understand that Church Council and you can't understand the Book of Galatians unless you understand that Scripture itself is teaching us how to properly distinguish between the law and the gospel, between the demands regarding God's will for us that we do not keep, and the good news that Christ has done this all for us and that he has bled and died for our sins. And this, this, is, this is the law-gospel distinctive in Scripture, not, not found in Luther's writings, not found in the writings of the Church Fathers. This is laid out for us in Scripture. In fact, what I find comforting in this is that God's Word teaches us how to understand God's Word. It gives us the crib notes. It gives us, you know, if you would, you know, the keys to unlocking how to properly interpret it. And if you ignore these sections of Scripture, uh, you are, you, you run the risk, and, you know, and 99 times out of 100, you're going to misunderstand God's Word if you don't pay attention to how God's Word tells you to understand it, and that is according to the law-gospel distinctive. Now, the, where we should go from here, then, you know, and I would encourage your listeners uh, to, you know, to finish out the book of Galatians, chapter 4, I mean, has some great kickers to it. You know, Paul in Galatians 4.21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a a free woman. And look how Paul takes, it kind of allegorizes the... uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and, and its implications regarding the law-gospel distinctive. Ishmael is the slave, and Isaac is, is born of the free woman. You know, you, so you can even say law-gospel plays out in a right understanding of, of the two sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. And, but um, Paul makes this important thing in Galatians 5. He says this, that, and this is where we've got to keep sober-minded on this. You mess up this law-gospel distinctive. 
you don't properly understand Scripture, you're going to smuggle in a false gospel. And Paul says this. He says, look, I Paul you that if you accept, tell you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What's at stake here is your very salvation. He says, I testify to, again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is now obligated to keep the whole law. And he says this, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, and you have fallen away from grace. This, that's what's really at stake here. That, and, and there's you know, a re-echo of you, if you would, of Galatians chapter 1. If, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. Paul even makes that, you know, that near the end of the book and says, You're severed from Christ, you who would want to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. So what's at stake is your very salvation. But now let's take a look at Romans chapter 3. And this is, you know, ground zero for the Protestant Reformation and for the Lutheran Reformation. And the reason for this is that, you know, Luther grew up in medieval Catholicism, and if anyone could have been saved by his good works, uh, you know, you know, he was so stringent in his keeping of the law, he, you know, he became an Augustinian monk. And if anyone could have been saved by his monkery, it would have been Martin Luther. And Martin Luther ends up basically putting aside all of his good works, all of his, you know, all of his law keeping under the medieval Catholicism, and finds comfort in the book of Romans. And so let's kind of pick up where Paul's arguments begins to, you know, come to its conclusion in Romans chapter 3. We'll start at verse 9. And Paul has started an argument. It begins at the tail end of uh, chapter 1, continues through all of chapter 2, and Paul's basically this, this well-formed argument to basically demonstrate, you know, what the purpose of the law is and basically condemn us all. And that's what the job of the law is. He says, what then? He says, are we Jews any better off? He says, no, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all that is, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And this gets to the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show you that you are a sinner. He says, just as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is the true thunder of God's law. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is the verdict of the law. It damns every single one of us. And that's Paul's point. And if you think that you're going to be justified by the law, oh, you are just playing with fire. You have no clue. You are, you are self-deceived at this point. Do you not know that this is the verdict of the law, that you stand condemned? That's the point. And so Paul then says, so now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And here's the reason, so that every mouth may be stopped. I think about Matt Harrison's presentation at the uh, Higher Things Conference this summer in, uh, in Wisconsin. He basically said the purpose of the law is to shut you up, to shut you up, shut up. You know, that's what the law says. Be silent. You are a sinner. And, and, this, and, you, and you think, I don't want to, I don't like this verdict. Well, get over it. it the verdict is true. He says, every mouth may be stopped. The whole world held accountable for, uh, to God. And here's that, that phrase again, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, we have to preach 
law and gospel. The law has to do its killing work. It has to condemn you. It has to strip everything out of your hands and take away all of those worthless good works that you think somehow make a right standing before God and make you a complete beggar with empty handed, penniless. You've got nothing on your own. And this is what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. The the job of the law is to bankrupt you spiritually and show you have nothing that you can hold up before God and say, well, you owe me a right standing before you because I've done this, that, and the other thing. The law says, shut up, be quiet. You are are a sinner, and no one is going to be justified or declared righteous, you know, through the law. Instead, the purpose of the law is to show you that you are a sinner. Now, verse 21, ground zero for the, for, the for the Reformation. But now, the righteousness of God. The diakasune tu theu, the righteousness of God. And this is where Luther, he, he, he wrestled with this, because when he saw this, you know, this, this phrase, the righteousness of God, he always assumed the righteousness of God is that standard by which he's got to uh, excel and get to. But and then he has this, he, he understands finally, wait a second, this isn't what I'm doing, this is what God is doing. This righteousness from God is not my righteousness, it is really truly God's righteousness. This is a possessive genitive here, the diakasune tu theu. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they actually bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who do what? Keep the law? No, he says, for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified. Again, there's that Greek verb, dikaiao, are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, you can say atoning sacrifice, by His blood to be received by what? By works? No, 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 received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? This then becomes a question. Is that, well, if we're saved totally by God's grace, as a gift, because of his mercy, because of what Jesus has done, well, then what becomes of boasting? Well, boasting is excluded. It's excluded. Why? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith. Watch this. Apart from works of the law. So Romans 3.28 makes it clear that we are declared righteous. Our right standing before God is 100% by faith, or you can even say by faith alone. Uh-huh. And, it, and it, uh, it's 100% apart from works of the law. And that's Paul's argument. So here again, law, gospel, distinctive, it's right there in the text. This is not Martin Luther speaking, although this is the text that Martin Luther really, truly rediscovered the gospel with. But that law, gospel, distinctive is right there in the text. And uh, and if you fast forward just a few verses uh, to chapter 4, Paul again goes to Abraham, says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, well, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that would be me and you, all of us, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you can see from these passages, you know, from the uh, Church Council in Acts chapter 15 to the book of Galatians, where we get to see some of the arguments that the Apostle Paul employed against the Judaizers, to uh, the book of Romans, which is this wonderful catechism of, 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 you know, of the grand sweep of Christian, of Christian doctrine, that this law-gospel distinctive is all over these texts, and it is explicitly taught. And when you mix these things up and you try to smuggle into, you, you know, into the doctrine of justification your works, then you, you end up losing the gospel. That's what's at stake. And you have these exclusive statements throughout these texts, and especially in the book of Romans, that make it clear that we are saved apart from our works. Now, Oftentimes, when people hear you talk like this or preach like this, they would say, but, 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 but if, if you're a Christian, you're going to do good works. You know, and get, understand this, that in, in unpacking the doctrine of justification, in properly understanding what the Bible teaches between the law and gospel distinctive, we are not talking about sanctification at this point. That you know, there is there is a there is a third use of the law, which is which informs us what the will of God is and what our good works are. But when we when we're talking about the law gospel distinctive, down in its real essence, in a sense, we're talking about our right standing before God. Is it something active that I have to earn, or is it passively received? And the and the law gospel distinctive makes it very clear. And again, this is scripture that. Our justification, our right standing before God, that verdict that comes down from God that says innocent, that is all received passively by faith, not earned actively by works, even in small part. So um, back to kind of with the guy that we're, we're not picking on him, but we're using him as an example, Mark Jones, uh, who is pretty clear in his, in his latest book that uh, Christians— have their assurance that they are that that good works in his words good good works are necessary for salvation. How could he possibly be reading these same passages and drawing that conclusion? Yeah, that's <laughs> that his. I would just I would have to say that what I would accuse Jones of is is doing the very thing that he's actually accusing the Lutherans of. He's he's actually imposing something on the text in order to get away from these clear statements. Now, to, to make something clear is uh, the majoristic controversy in uh, Lutheran history. Um, you, you, you can actually you know, look at the uh, formula of Concord that you know, addresses some of these issues. Is that Lutherans will say this, is that Scripture says that good works are necessary. It does not say they're necessary for salvation. But when we say that they're necessary, it, it it's it's like saying, listen, in order for you to live, breathing is necessary. You've got to breathe if you want to keep living. And, you know, it's, it's in that sense, because if you're truly regenerate, Christ has raised you from the grave, and you have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that is something living and active, and you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You can't help but do good works in the same way that just as the body is breathing is 
you know, it, 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 the body that is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. So, the, you know, to say that good works are necessary is to say, well, listen, it's necessary for you to breathe if you want to keep living. Well, of course, you, you, know, you, know, you know, how many of you are trying to breathe in order to live? No, you, you're, you, it, your breath, the fact that you're breathing shows that you're alive. So good works show that faith is alive. But when you put, hinge your assurance of your salvation on your good works, you, you've, you've flipped everything upside down, and you're actually you know, misunderstanding what God's Word says. You know, our assurance is never in our good works. Our assurance is, is 100% based upon the good works that Christ performed for us, and that's received, not earned. Well, what's at stake here? Um, there's a, obviously no doubt that people will continue to object. They will say, you know, there's, there are other ways to read the Bible— than law and gospel. It's a good way. It's it's one very it maybe even is the best way, but it's not the only way. What's your response? Oh man. Um my question immediately would be why why are you trying to somehow make space for a, a way of reading scripture that scripture doesn't give us to read it by? Does that make sense? See the idea here is is that I'm reading Scripture the way Scripture tells me to read Scripture, not by the way I, you know, listen, there's all kinds of different interpretations. Yeah, there are, there's tons of different interpretations, and that's kind of the postmodernism that we live in. You know, there's a Marxist interpretation of Scripture. You think of liberation theology. There's, you know, there's a feminist way of reading the Scripture. That's, a, that's another interpretive thing. But all of those things are are things that, you know, we're approaching the Scripture with our own lenses, yet Scripture itself in the Law-Gospel Distinctive is giving us the interpretive keys and lens in order to rightly understand God's Word. Why would you, why would you bristle against this? Why are you trying to add to this or in some way, you know, you know put little asterisks and say, oh, well, the Law-Gospel, yeah, it may be the best, but we've got these other ways, too. No, 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 no. Be satisfied with what we've received. And that's a wonderful thing about this, is that the law-gospel distinctive is something that we actually receive from God in His Word. All of these other interpretive schemas, many of them, you know, they come, they're mixed with philosophy or man-made opinions and stuff like that. And uh, whereas the law-gospel distinctive, it's received. This is a received interpretation, not an imposed interpretation. Why would I want to change that, alter it, or add to it. I, I, you know, listen, I, I'm just a creature. I mean, I've only been on this planet for 46 years, and in the grand scheme of eternity and how long the Earth has been around, that's just a minuscule thing. I mean, I, why on Earth would I be so, you know, have so much hubris as to think that I've got a better way of understanding God's Word than the, God, the, the way God's Word tells me to understand it? Does that make sense? Well, what would you say to a Lutheran pastor? In fact, uh, I, my producer, Jeff, is is fond of telling the story of, you know, actually leaving a Lutheran congregation after a conversation, after a number of conversations, but kind of coming to a head with a with a Lutheran pastor who simply said, "Look, I I feel I am no longer I'm not under any obligation to preach law and gospel. There's some other ways to approach the text, and I know that law and gospel is out there, and I've done that in the past, but I don't feel under any obligation to preach that." What would you say to such a pastor, a Lutheran pastor? <laughs> well, we we got a, we got a problem here. We have several problems, and uh, you know, for one, 
um, you know, I, you know, I, I'm a pastor in the AALC, and in order to uh, be in the AALC on the clergy roster, I have to have a quia subscription to the uh, uh, the Lutheran Confessions. And these are things that are, you know, that are, you know, I, I don't get to approach the Lutheran Confessions, which we say are true because they say the same thing as the Word of God. Um, you know, the Lutheran Confessions explicitly spell out what the Scriptures teaches regarding law and gospel, and it even tells ministers how, you know, they, they are to continue to preach law and gospel. And so, you know, we're, in, this, in a sense, if you have a Lutheran pastor who his ordination vows uh, require a quia subscription, if he's deviating from that, then at that point he's actually breaking his ordination vows and deviating from what he promised to do uh, when, he was, uh, when he was installed in the ministry. The uh, the Lutheran confessions refer to law and gospel, and this is a phrase that gets borrowed and picked up by many others. But they refer to the distinction between law and gospel as an especially brilliant light, and and that you're right, they absolutely do bind us to read the scriptures this way and uh, recommend to us that this is the only way that scripture is to be properly understood. That's the whole point of the especially brilliant light. If someone says, look, um, I'm going to read, study, I'm going to preach Holy Scripture, um, but I'm going to find, I'm going to try and find a different way than law and gospel, maybe invent a new one, or I'm going to kind of try to come out with completely uh, tabula rasa. I'm not going to let any of those preconceptions about law and gospel influence how I read the Bible. What are they going to find? What will the Bible be then to them? At that point, you, you're going to start erroring in, in, uh, in wrongly understanding how to use the law. And at that point, the Bible is going to become, well, it, it'll, it'll turn into Aesop's fables and, you know, stories with uh, moral imperatives where, you know, you, you want to be like Daniel, you've got to dare to stand up to people. You, you, the five smooth stones of David, you know, to slay your own Goliaths. And, and the Bible becomes a handbook or a manual for right living. And, you know, at, at that point, you've, you, you end up losing the gospel. And it, it, it may not be noticed as profoundly at first, but it's, it's, the best way to put it is, is that, you know, when you make that switch it's think of it like uh, uh, railroads you know there's there's games out there that you can play with that are based on railroad analogies but when you make that decision to uh, you know to start tampering with the law gospel distinctive or you're not confident that this is what God's word actually teaches us as to how to read the scriptures then what happens is is that think of it as like a train on a journey down the line you know all the way down the line there's there's tracks that have been switched you know the destination changes and so you might be traveling along a particular stretch of of track and not really notice anything significantly different but keep traveling down that track and you know you're going to find yourself on a different set of tracks altogether and end up at a completely different destination this is a dangerous game to be playing very dangerous game to be playing at all the um the the problem that a guy like mark jones is trying to address is either a perceived or a, a real antinomianism, antinomianism in the church. That is, people who say, no, the gospel trumps the law, and that the law no longer has anything to say whatsoever to a Christian. We just kind of wander around in the fuzzy freedom of the gospel uh, without the law any longer speaking to us. Let's say that, for the sake of argument, that this isn't just perceived, it's, it's a real problem. 
what is the law and gospel answer to uh, well, to that error? Yeah, great, great question. Um, uh, I happen to know some bona fide antinomians. If you want to know what antinomianism really looks like, I would point you to the people in the ELCA. Let's 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 get a real uh, feel for what antinomianism is. Where they're they're you know they've they're gospel reductionists in a sense, and where they're you know they're affirming gay marriage and um, you know and blessing same sex marriages and things like that. That's what antinomianism really looks like, and. Oddly enough, the solution to this is not to get rid of the law gospel distinctive. The solution to this is the law gospel distinctive, because what, have they, what they've done is antinomianism basically says the law has nothing to say to us Christians. Oh, but this is not true. The law does have something to say to us Christians, and we must preach law and gospel correctly and distinguish between the two. So the error of antinomianism, what's necessary is not that you somehow take away the gospel promises. Instead, what you've got to do is preach the law in all of its rigor. And you pre- you know, and at that point, you, you have to kind of hold back on the gospel until the law has done its killing work, but that's always what the law-gospel distinctive is about. Law to convict of sins, gospel to comfort sinners. So with antinomianism, you've got to preach the law and the gospel correctly. And I would say, even on the flip side, pietism, which, you know, you know, which is legalism, you know, is another way of putting it. The, the solution is not that you withhold the law, because pietism wrongly believes that they, that they are keeping the law. So the, the solution to pietism is the same thing, the law-gospel distinctive. You preach the law, then, to convict the pietist of his sinfulness and basically take away their, their, their erroneous belief that they're somehow keeping the law. The pietism is an error where you, you shave off the hard edges of the law to kind of create the false impression that you're keeping it. But so with antinomianism and with the pietism, which are both opposite ditches that people fall into, you know, the one's on one side of the road, the other's on the other side of the road. The solution is not to abandon the law-gospel distinctive. The solution is to reaffirm the law-gospel distinctive and to preach the law in all of its rigor and the gospel in all of its blessed comfort. You know, that's, that's the solution to both of those errors. And is it, is it possible that we're really just dealing with a, a misperception um, on the part of Jones and, and the like? What they're actually seeing is the gospel— and they're saying, I don't like what it has to say. It seems to say that there's nothing I can do. It seems to say that Jesus has actually done it all, and that sounds to me like a license to sin. Kind of the old, yeah. uh, let us go on sinning that grace may abound. Yeah, in fact, that what the, the Apostle Paul in, in the book of Romans you know, he did it in Galatians, and he does it even you know stronger in the book of in the book of Romans. This is exactly the charge that comes out when you're preaching the gospel correctly. When you're preaching the law to condemn and strip people of all notions that their righteousness is based in part on their on their good works, and then you preach the gospel in all of its comfort, the the charge of antinomianism will come. I mean, it happens, you know, to me all the time. But see, the thing is, is that we're not talking about turning the gospel into a license to sin. And I remember as a Nazarene at Christ College, Irvine, hearing Rosenblatt, hearing Dr. Rosenblatt doing law and gospel and thinking, 
oh my goodness, I have never heard this before, and being very suspicious of it. Really, I mean, and this is and when I heard him preach the gospel, that he was saved totally by the, by the grace of Christ and what Christ has done for us. You know, I, I remember going up to Dr. Rosenblatt after class one day, and I'm a Nazarene at the time, and I say to him, Dr. Rosenblatt, Dr. Rosenblatt, if what you're saying is true, then you're saying, I can do whatever I want, okay? Which is saying a lot about me, really, if you think about it, because, you know, it's, you know, I've got a sinful nature, and what is it like to do? It likes to sin. So I, so I, I, I'm, I'm completely baffled by this. You're, you're saying I can do whatever I want. And Rosenblatt looks at me and says, right, Chris. He says, and now that Christ has set you free so that you can love God, what do you want to do? And I thought, well, I, um, well, that kind of puts it in a completely different light. And what Rosenblatt was doing with me is kind of a Romans 6 thing. Paul, after preaching the gospel so beautifully in Romans 3, 4, and 5, he goes on to say then, so what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may, be, may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, notice he points us to our baptism again, all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, and so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. No, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Why? Because you're baptized. So then let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And see, here's the thing. The person who says, well, because you're saying that we're saved totally by grace through faith and not by works, you're turning it into a license to sin or you're some kind of an antinomian. They're making a category error. You see, Scripture makes it clear. Sin is slavery. Freedom. Freedom, in real true freedom, is, is being set free from slavery to sin in order to then do the will of God. And that only comes by grace through faith. You can't do that on your own steam with your own self-righteousness. So true Christian sanctification absolutely 100% hinges on a proper distinction of law and gospel. You get that wrong, and you're going to and you're going to create make sanctification into the thing that justifies you before God. And by doing that, you lose the gospel altogether. Chris Rosebro is pastor of Kantzfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. He's host of the daily internet talk show called Fighting for the Faith, and he's very nicely set the table for the last two hours of issues, etc. Of 24. We're going to take up the myth with Pastor Peter Bender that Lutherans don't believe or teach good works. Chris, thank you so much for being our guest, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Todd. When we come back, it's the last two hours of Issues Etc. 24, hours 23 and 24. We're going to spend those two dealing with one of the bigger myths. They're all, they're all you know, of varying sizes, but this one is one of the bigger ones about Lutheranism. Lutherans don't teach or believe much about good works. We'll take that up with Pastor Peter Bender on the other side of the break, live 
this Saturday morning, November the 15th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned for the last two hours and the last subject of Issues Etc. 24. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Hello, this is Kitty Anderson, a microbiologist from Atlanta, Georgia. I became a confessional Lutheran later in life, but through this program, I've gotten up to speed on doctrinal issues like law and gospel, the sacrament, serving my neighbor through my vocation, and reading the Bible with Christ at the center. I get news and perspectives about legal, cultural, and church polity issues that no one else is covering. As far as the etc., well, I had no idea that the world's largest ketchup bottle is in Collinsville. I love ketchup, and I love issues, etc. Thank you. <laughs> Had to get a reference to the uh, world's largest ketchup <laughs> bottle in there here in Collinsville, Illinois. Hey, it's for sale, too. That's right. It is for sale. We haven't put a bid on that yet. Uh, I guess uh, we'll have to take a look at that uh, one of these days. But uh, we are uh, broadcasting live from Collinsville, Illinois, the studios of Lutheran Public Radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. 24. Craig Feichtinger. I'm Jeff Schwartz. And uh hope you're enjoying Issues Etc. 24 we got uh, two hours left to go. The sun's been out for a couple of hours. Uh, looks like a nice uh, sunny day today, kind of brisk outside. We're supposed to get some snow, I understand. But uh, we're glad you stayed with us during Issues Etc. 24. And uh, we have some people to thank. Thanks to uh, Matt in Niles, Illinois. Thanks, Pastor. He's the pastor at St. John's in uh, Niles, Illinois. Thanks so much for listening and for your contribution. And Matt... Also gives us uh, good questions and comments uh, via email uh, during the uh, show Monday through Friday. And also Marie Federer, our good friend in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Marie, good to, good to uh, hear from you, and thanks for your generous donation to Issues Etc. And any size donation will get you uh, the book, Why I Am a Lutheran, Jesus at the Center. Uh, and uh, we just had a drawing, Jeff, for... Uh, Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther, and that book goes to Kirsten in Sonomish, Washington. Congratulations, Kirsten, and we'll get that book out to you um, in the next uh, week or two, and I hope you enjoy uh, Law and Gospel from C.F.W. Walther. Now, a gift of $100 or more during the next two hours. We'll have a drawing two hours from now for the book Friends of the Law, Luther's Use of the Law for the Christian Life, and uh, we'll draw that two hours from now, a little less than two hours from now. And uh, you could be eligible to win that book for a $100 donation to Issues Etc. in the next uh, less than two hours here during Issues Etc. 24. Call now, 
877-623-MIIE, 618-223-8385. If you'd like to, uh, you're an on-demand listener, you'd like to make a credit card donation, that's the number for you. And uh, anytime, day or night, at issuesetc.org. Support this worldwide outreach, this international outreach of Issues Etc. during Issues Etc. 24.